0: Hello and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Karfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. We've recently launched our NBC Sunday series, Every other Sunday, we are hosting a live webinar series that is also streamed on Facebook, on our Facebook page, Surviving Breast Cancer Org. And we talk about all specific topics related to the metastatic breast cancer community. This ranges from dealing with grief, talking to your children about cancer, preparing an estate planning, the difference between palliative care and hospice, et cetera. So this is just a great series. Obviously, it is specific to NBC, but of course, all stages, all people are always welcome. Today on Breast Cancer Conversations, I am pleased to be continuing the conversation with Matt Whitaker and Abigail Johnston. This is a follow-up from last week's podcast where we talked about end-of-life choices. And one question that I wanted to pull out of that dialogue was the role that medical aid and dying play. Our webinar series is also made possible because of our friends and partnership that we have at Citizen. Surviving Cancer.org and Citizen are joining forces to get you full control over your medical records so you can find better treatment options, including clinical trials. With end-to-end military-grade encryption to keep your data secure, Citizen ensures that you decide who you share your information with. Your privacy comes first. We couldn't be more excited to share this free resource with our community. We encourage you to check out Citizen. And because you heard it here first through survivingbreastcancer.org, Breast Cancer Conversations podcast, we have a special URL just for you. You can go to Citizen forward slash SBC Trials. That's spelled C-I-I-T-I-Z-E-N forward slash SBC Trials. I'm not going to lie. Medical aid in dying is a controversial topic. But in today's conversation, we want to focus on end-of-life choices and how to mitigate suffering. Welcome to the conversation.
1: One of the things that I get asked a lot when I talk to people about my work with Compassion and Choices and this idea of medical aid in dying is the... um, that, that may people may have religious objections to the the concept itself, um, that it is, you know, the, the S word, it's suicide. Um, since you do have a theology background, uh, would you like to speak to that a little bit, Matt? Because that is that seems to be one of the most prevalent conversations I have in this space.
2: Yeah, you know, it is very interesting. And there are people who have, you know, deeply held religious convictions that preclude them from, personally ever being interested in something like medical aid and dying uh, because of the feeling that ultimately the giver and taker of life is some type of higher power however that person's background names that higher power Um, and and many times this comes into play in kind of more conservative christian theology Um, but there are two things that for me as someone who personally identifies as christian and who takes theology seriously and um and study seriously enough that I took out student loans for it. You know, um, I, I I I I personally have kind of two thoughts that really um, have brought me to the place where I'm not only comfortable but think that this is actually uh, it's a religious imperative for me to to advocate for this. And, and one is that ultimately, um, in the New Testament, uh, which is the Christian book that details the life of Jesus and the time after that prophet. Um, One important kind of piece of what we're taught about his ministry is that throughout his lifetime, anytime someone cried out for help, anytime someone who was suffering spoke, uh, he gave preferential treatment to the person who was suffering. They were the one who ultimately got to speak about this. And when you look at medical aid and dying and how it is that it came about, how it is that it continues to be um, brought forward, It's not a special interest group or some philosophical um, ivory tower person who's bringing this up. It's people who are suffering. It's people who are terminally ill and who are saying, I need this. And for me, ultimately, my uh, allegiance is with those who are suffering, if I'm going to follow that example that I see in the Bible. And it doesn't really matter what I think about it. I need to make sure that I'm with those who are suffering and that if this is what they're crying out for, that that's what I'm advocating for. Um, The other piece, just to uh, uh, piggyback on some of our conversations about medical technology, is that many people say, well, that's playing God or that's interfering with the natural law of the world. Guess what? Like We're there. That's how we're able to live longer with serious illness. That's how we're able to spend more time with our families when we're facing things that at one point were a death sentence. That's how we're able to uh, continue to uh, to innovate. That's how we're facing a pandemic right now and, and seeing some type of light at the end of the tunnel because of amazing advances in ways that uh, we are able to, in some ways, uh, fight against the natural forces of the world that are putting things in motion. Um, so, you know, when we talk about that, uh, it, it, we're there, you know, and with medical technology, people are living longer and longer, but oftentimes facing more acute suffering at the end of life from, from illnesses. And that's one of the many reasons why people are crying out for this option. So, uh, you know, it's a to me, it's a, a inconsistent argument when someone says something like that about this, because we're already kind of in that spot. And so now it's about how do we err on the side of compassion? How do we listen to those that are suffering? how do we um, take ourselves out of the equation and make sure that that person is receiving the preference? And I could preach on that all day. It's Sunday, but um, that's that's the cliff notes version of it.
1: Thank you for for explaining that. I mean, I I think that it's hard for anybody who is not in a situation where you have been told that you're terminal to understand how you begin thinking about thinking differently about death, thinking differently about you know, what, what are my goals or what are the the things that I want to see happen? Um, and where I always come back to is um, Jesus said, the three greatest things are faith, hope, and love. And the mm. greatest of things is love. And like Absolutely. you said, suffering, when you love somebody that's incompatible with suffering, uh, you don't want them to suffer. Um, I think as a parent, the worst possible thing that could happen and you'll see my children jumping in the background because they're that active, as a parent, you rush to, you rush to relieve suffering. If your child Mm -hmm. falls down, you rush Mm -hmm. to them. You're trying to take away those things. And I don't think that God or higher power or whoever you wanna style that as, if you believe in a benevolent higher power, I don't think that it it is consistent with that belief that that higher power would want you to suffer. Um, So thank you for, for, for explaining that. And I've had a lot of conversations, my dad who's a pastor, we've had a lot of conversations about that. Um, because you look differently at the world when when you know that you have something that is going to end your life. Um, so thank you for, mm-hmm. for that explanation, Matt. I, I am sure that there are people who would not seek out something like Compassionate
2: Choices if they had
1: that perspective. Um, but how many states is it now that medical aid and dying is even a possibility?
2: Yeah, so it's 11 jurisdictions right now. Uh, so it, it is and being debated in, you know, over 20 uh, right now where these conversations are going on. So it is something that is spreading. You know, when I started at Compassion Choices, there were three. Um, and it, it is something that is continuing to happen again as people are coming out for these conversations and as we're seeing examples of people who are courageously talking about it, you know, people like you, Abigail, and uh, people who um, are willing to speak on those pieces and, and and that generation of people that Didi spoke about who are now. Seeing their loved ones pass, and who are going like, is—is is everybody seeing what I'm seeing? Uh, and through community, uh, are are able to kind of come forward and advocate for these pieces.
1: And there are people in in your network who actually move. To places where medical aid in dying is possible when they are diagnosed with something serious like, say, a, a glioblastoma, an inoperable brain tumor, or yeah. something of that nature.
2: Well, you know, exactly. You know, we saw the, the very widely uh, publicized story of Brittany Menard, who moved from California to Oregon uh, when she had a glioblastoma to access medical aid in dying. But, you know, what we're seeing even more so is people who are not terminal. Uh, deciding that the places where they want to spend kind of their later years, that this is a piece that comes into that decision. You know, uh, I've met several people who have moved to Oregon and said, you know, we moved there, you know, because we love rainy weather. And also <laughs> because, uh, this is a place where this option exists. Uh, but it, it, it's a conversation that comes up often, uh, again, for this generation of people who are saying, you know, I have lived with such intention, uh, I chose my career. I chose how many children I wanted to have, where I wanted to live. I worked hard to make sure that I lived a life that was in line with my values and that I could be proud of. And I want to make sure that I'm not approaching the end of my life and suddenly relegating that to somebody else. And so, again, they are, are saying, well, if that means living in California, by God, I'll live in California. If that means moving to Vermont, I'll move to Vermont because I want to make sure I have everything at my disposal uh, when that time comes. And those also happen to be the people who are having these conversations with their family members who are um, making sure that they have all this lined up, who before they move into a retirement community, make sure that the medical staff there are comfortable with these pieces. All of those things are, again, becoming more self-evident to a whole generation of people. Uh, and I couldn't be happier about it because I think it, it flows downhill, a A society that embraces those conversations is is also a society that embraces life and um, that lives, again, intentionally more loving and things like that. So um, uh, I think that we are seeing that. and, And in the time of COVID, more and more of those conversations occur as well.
1: I think I read a statistic that after medical aid and dying became legalized in, I think it was Washington, D.C., it was a a period of many years before anybody actually took advantage of it. So this idea of it becomes legal and all of a sudden the floodgates open and all these people are taking advantage of it, that hasn't turned out to be true. Is uh, is that correct,
2: Matt? That is so correct. Uh, You know, we had a little bit of that in California um, when the law took effect, but that was because there was a, a nine-month period or so before uh, it became effective after the law was passed. So there were people who had been waiting, had been having conversations through those nine months. But, you know, it's not a, a floodgates opening up and people are going through this um, process, process. And in fact, in Oregon, um, uh, not only is it that people who actually get the medication, a full third end up not taking the medication. Uh, And it's a very small percentage of people who even get the medication. But there was a study done by Linda Ganzini, who's a great um, psychological researcher here at the medical school. And she found that based on some conversations with family members, that one out of every 25 requests actually ended in the person getting a prescription. 24 out of those 25, the conversation, the open, honest conversation that came from that, was enough to palliate the person's concerns, for them to feel more comfortable. So for the, those 24 out of 25, that might have been the first time that they had an open, honest, transparent dialogue about what it is that's important to them, what it is that they fear, how their symptoms are being managed. And and that was what they cited. There were people who said, you know, I think I want medical aid in dying because I don't want to have to leave my home and the and physicians would say, Well, we can work on that. There are resources. Like, if you want to go through with this, let's do that. But if that's the motivation, let's talk about how it is that we can support you. All. Or a person who said, Well, I saw my family member die from bone cancer, and I didn't, it was incredibly traumatic for me. And then the doctor said, Well, you don't have bone cancer. Let's talk about what end stage for your illness looks like. Uh, and and came to find out that it was very different. You know, all of those kind of deep conversations, really vulnerable conversations, uh, were taking place, and and you know, physicians were citing those as some of the most meaningful conversations they've ever had, where they were able to be vulnerable as well. It became kind of this two-way human street that was going on. So. In places where this law passes, you know, as we often say, no more people will die because the law is in effect, but fewer people will suffer. And it's not just because people are receiving medication that they can take at the end of their life. It's because people have permission to say, I am scared uh, and here are my concerns. And like I said at the beginning, how can we work backwards from that place of fear to a place of feeling like you have some power?
0: Around this medical aid in dying conversation, is there a way to predict for those of us with metastatic breast cancer who are confronted with some of these choices? How do we know the extent to which it's going to be, quote unquote, like a a hard death? How do we know whether or not we are going to suffer to want to already set up in advance some of these, these, medical aid and dying opportunities. And then the second part of that is what is the timeline for that? I understand that in different States, it could take a couple of months to set up that type of care and it's, is it, or is it not something that's covered by insurance?
1: Yeah. So as far as, um, metastatic breast cancer and looking ahead to what kind of symptoms might happen because of whatever type of metastases. Um, you have, and then what that might look like in terms of the end of life. Um, unfortunately, that is one of those very, very, very specific questions specific to you, specific to your experience. I, I'm, I'm reminded of we had a, a discussion in the Bone Mets Only group. Um, I have bone only Bone Mets at this point. And just the, the, the wide variety of people who experience pain, um, I might have Mets in the exact same place as somebody else, but for me, it's painful for that other person. It's not, um, the same with honestly, every other type of metastases. I know people who have brain Mets who have very few symptoms because of exactly where their brain Mets are. And then I know other people whose personalities are entirely different. And so unfortunately I wish there was a one size fits all. You have metastatic breast cancer. You have these mets. This is what your death is going to be like. I wish there was a way to predict those things, but um, that I believe is an ongoing conversation with your medical oncologist, with your pain management doctor, with your hospice doctor, with your palliative doctor, um, you know, these are the types of conversations that your doctor should be able to give you some direction for and then also discuss what what are the remedies in that particular situation. For instance, I've already talked to my palliative doctor about the fact that I don't want morphine. I don't want to be doped up on narcotics. I use medical cannabis to manage pain, to manage other side effects. She knows that's my perspective. That's my bent. That's my bias. And so just like Didi and Matt have been talking about, I've had those conversations with my doctors, so they know what to suggest. They know kind of what category to pull out um, options uh, from Mm -hmm. their toolbox because they know the box where I fit in or they know what the things are that are important to me. Like Matt was talking about, decisions that somebody makes in Georgia might be very different from somebody on the West Coast in terms of what options they're going to look at. Um, so I hope that's that's helpful in terms of, of that particular question. But the other piece of when do you get all of this stuff in place? The answer is now. <laughs> the answer is when you're thinking about it, do it right now. Um, Anna Spencer, who was our estate planning attorney, t- talked a lot about you make these decisions, you make these arrangements when things are calm. You think these things through when you aren't in a crisis, when there's not chaos, when you're feeling well, you think about, you envision your um, ideal.
0: Envisioning your ideal. I love that. Thank you, Abigail and Matt, for taking this opportunity for a little excerpt to go into medical aid and dying. I feel like we just scratched the surface. And so we can definitely expect some more on this topic coming out in future episodes, also on future Fridays and on our blogs at survivingbreastcancer.org. We look forward to continuing our webinar series. It happens every two weeks where we bring Abigail and some guest speakers on our show. You can check out the full lineup at survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you would like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect, you can find out more by visiting our website at survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, feel free to contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. And of course, we have a couple social media handles you can follow us at as well. For example, Surviving Breast Cancer Org, all one word, as well as our podcast specifically, Breast Cancer Conversations. Until next time, keep on thriving.